0: You're listening to a DM podcast. In my latest book, Smart, Stupid, and 60, I write about an embarrassing Marsh family tradition. Namely, that as the years have rolled by since its release in 2003, we've fallen into the habit of watching Love Actually. Every single year it never fails to deliver kate is appalled afresh when alan rickman breaks emma thompson's heart i laugh at the jokes i've heard hundreds of times before and we all shout out the classic lines on cue Uh, would we call her chubby and eight is a lot of legs david not cool i realize and something i used to keep to myself until that is i discovered millions of others around the world have the same tradition So, with that in mind, and Christmas just a few days away, I wanted to share an episode we did a little while ago with one of the breakout stars of the movie. Just in cases you'd like a different Five of My Life addition to your annual Love Actually tradition. Welcome to the Five of My Life with me, Nigel Marsh. As an author, ad man and theologian, I've always been interested in people's stories. Not just those with a high profile, but people from all walks of life, regardless of fame which is why I created this show. Each guest who takes the five of my life challenge chooses a favourite film, book, song, place and possession. They tell me their choices in advance so I can research them, but they don't tell me why they've chosen them. That's the subject of our conversation. It's amazing what you can learn when discussing someone's five choices. I hope you enjoy listening to the show as much as I enjoy making it. I adored this conversation with Chris. He's a hugely successful actor whose many loved roles can tend to obscure the reflective deep thinker behind them. Warm, open and often unexpected in his comments, Chris was very gracious in doing this interview on his holiday as I bollocked up the recording I had done with him at his house previously. So Chris, welcome again to Five of My Life.
1: Thank you very much, Nigel. It's good to be back.
0: Uh, how is the snow?
1: Uh, well, um, I got in late last night, so I haven't sampled it yet. Um, right after we get off this, um, strap on some planks of wood to my feet and um, I'm going to head up the mountain. So, uh, But it looks good. It looks pretty good. I think conditions are pretty, pretty good, actually.
0: And, and are you a an accomplished skier or are you an amateur?
1: Um, I, I would say somewhere in between. I'm a passable skier. OK, so um, black
0: runs don't hold any fear for you type thing.
1: No, I'm all right on a black. Um, I'm not the greatest off-piste skier because I'm, I'm tall and I just look like a grasshopper on, on two <laughs> planks of wood. Really. How,
0: how, um, how tall are you, by the way?
1: 6'2. Not super tall.
0: Not laughable.
1: Not <laughs> 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 model tall. I like to say.
0: <laughs> <laughs> you, you look good in a suit. I've, I've, I've been doing my research. I've, I've been seeing all the, uh, all the pictures. Now, on Five of My Life, it is traditional that we start with our guest's film. Uh, and you have chosen one of Five of My Life's absolute favourites. It's one of my personal all-time favourites. You've chosen With Nail and I. Could you tell us, please, why you have chosen that on Five of My Life?
1: Well, thank you, Nigel. Um, yeah, so it, I guess in a way, for an actor... It's a sort of a bit of a tropey choice, but it does have um, more meaning and it does resonate more, more than just the fact that it's, uh, you know, two wannabe British actors in a flat in Camden in 1969. Basically, I'll go back to when I was first introduced to the film, when I got kicked out of school and then... You know, and I kind of thought to myself, well, what am I going to do? And then I thought, well, I've always enjoyed a bit of the acting, so I thought I'll try and give that a go. I'll give it five years. I went to this sort of stage school place in in Maidenhead in the UK, uh, called Red Roof. It's A lovely place, but um, completely wrong for my my choice of career because it was a stage school, you know. And they were more, you know, into doing songs from Les Mis than you know than doing Brecht and Chaucer and. But what what I met some really good people there, and I met two guys who were huge Beatles fans. And George Harrison produced through handmade films with No Line. Yeah. So they introduced me to this film, and I, obviously it's just an amazing film. It's every line is quotable. It's it's one of those films that's turned into a cult. So it's it, it's and, and of course it resonates with any young broke wannabe up and coming actor. But more than that, for me, it has a sort of extra twist on it because the play that I, the character of I, who I believe is called Marwood, the character of I, played by Paul McGann, he's reading for a play at the beginning of the film, which he eventually, spoilers, I'm sorry, but he eventually gets the play and then that kind of breaks up their their sort of friendship, you know, that he goes off and does this job. The play he's reading for is a play called Journey's End by R.C. Sheriff. It's a First World War play. Um, Was first performed in the 20s in London with Laurence Olivier in the the lead role. And it's actually a play that I did, but I didn't just do the play. It's a play I did when I was literally on my ass and I was working as a builder's assistant and not a very good one. And I got this play underneath a pub in Chelsea, in London. And um, I would finish work at five o'clock and I'd be covered in brick dust and, or dirt or whatever it was we were working on that day. And then I would dr- get in my car, drive up to London about 20 miles. And then I would um, get into my First World War costume. I, I'd nip up to the bar, I'd have half of lager. Um, and I'd come downstairs and I'd do this play to about 20 people underneath a pub where if Chelsea, who was a local football team, were playing upstairs and it was on the TV and they scored, then... People would stamp on the, on the floor of the, of, the, of the ceiling, which added a sort of certain fouissance to our First World War um, trenches play. But, um, but during that, a performance of that play, of, to which I was paid, I think, £10 a week, an American guy who ran a very famous um, off-West End theatre called King's Head... Theatre in Islington he came to see the play and he said I want to take this play to the King's Head but I want to keep the young guy which was me at the time and he said but I I want to get two more names for the other two leads so so he took me with the play to the King's Head Theatre where it became a bit of a hit actually and so started the ball rolling on my career and so it's it was a real it was a real sort of foundation of my career and so I feel I mean, not just the fact that it's a brilliant film and it has so many quotable lines, and the performances are amazing. It sort of it has it resonates with me as well.
0: It's wonderful to hear that angle on on that film i mean in in researching it i mean i've watched it hundreds of times and now researched it twice because another actor actually chose it and and, and had a, a different spin on it but the thing that stuns me is it's all true bruce Berryford david dundas and vivian whatever he was called mackerel I mean they so, so the fact that it resonates with you it's not just brilliant and funny and well acted it, it it's obviously reflective of a certain time and a certain career
1: well, uh, well, of course, I mean, any decent comedy is rooted in truth. Yeah. Bruce Robinson, yeah, he, he, he sort of condensed three years of his life into those sort of two or three weeks, but it is all true. You know, and he directed it and wrote it, so you can really sense what it was like to be an actor yeah. in the late 60s and also how it still is, I think. I mean, I don't know how it is now, but has certainly how it was in the, in the early 90s. You know, it was... Um, I Used to repair, have a pair of quite fancy Chelsea boots, which were, were, were sort of part of the actor's uniform in the late 80s and early 90s, and um, and I and I wore a hole through them from walking because you just walk everywhere because you can't afford trains, you can't really afford buses, and I certainly didn't have a car, so you just walk everywhere, and I wear a hole in the um, in the sole of them, and then use the cardboard uh, from Weetabix packets to. Uh, <laughs> To sort of, you know, and then that would work pretty well until it rained. Um, And then the, (laughs) the cardboard insert would just get soggy. And you'd have to
0: replace it. I, I have to ask you, obviously one of the, one of the themes in Richard E. Grant, what a, what a performance. But it, it is, Drink plays a massive, massive role, uh, uh, A, in real life, I would imagine, for many aspiring actors, but obviously in the film. It is, how is your, I, I, haven't had a, I haven't had a schooner for 20 years, how is your relationship with Drink then? Were you always on the Terps as a young actor?
1: Oh, I would say less so. Um, when I was a younger actor, because because of just the cost, um, <laughs> right? So we would pool our resources more. What was cheap at the time was um, more recreational substances, right. um, which feature in the film as well. <laughs> yeah. That was always cheaper. So um, now I would say my relationship with alcohol was okay in those days. It's, it sort of got more complicated as I got older.
0: Ah, so, so um, you're living a your life in reverse.
1: Well, I don't know about that. I mean, <laughs> Uh, yeah it, it sort of got more complicated as I got a little bit older and then I and then it sort of and then I had kids and it got even more complicated for a while <laughs> and then it sort of got better I would say I've I've walked pretty close to that line of you know of, of, of checking out you know and going that's enough I can't do this anymore you know I enjoy it and, and when 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 I do have a handle on it it's a, it's a, it's a healthy thing for me so thus far it's um it's um it's a it's a better relationship now
0: well that's the perfect link you you chose a film on five of my life where the main character is always on the turps and you've chosen a book where the main character it turns out was always on the drugs you've chosen it's not about the bike 2000 Lance Armstrong's uh, autobiography i cannot wait to hear why you've chosen this book, and and I've got a confession to make, mate. Uh, in my third book, the twelfth chapter is entitled "Fuck Off, Lance Armstrong." So I'm I'm open I'm open minded. Tell us why you have chosen. It's not about the bike.
1: Well, I mean, this is interesting because to me, because this, uh, you know, this is proper anthropological study. It's not just looking back at history, and going wow, um, and trying to sort of place yourself in that history i mean this is happening and changing all the time um you know this is a this is a, a moving beast what's particularly interesting to me um is when i first read the book it's all about the bike in 2005 2006 because i sort of uh, voraciously consume uh, my two favorite subjects are documentaries and sport right um and so th- this was perfect for me because here was this sort of leviathan this this sort of superhuman beast wonderfully battled back from life-threatening, life curtailing illness to not just ride professionally again, but be the best ever, to be all-consuming, a seven-time Tour de France winner. And, and you know, anyone who's ever been on a bike um, knows that it's pretty tough. Um, I mean, I live in Bath uh, in the UK, which is a pretty hilly place. And I, and I like a, I like a bike, you know, I, I go out on my bike quite a lot and um, you have to be supremely fit, I'm not, but you have to be supremely fit to undertake anything remotely close to endurance racing on a bike. It's the, one of the most extreme sports. It's also one of the only sports I can think of where you need to lose more weight to get more fit, apart from maybe being a jockey, um, <laughs> you know. You have to sort of have the weight-strength ratio of, like, an human ich- ich- fly or something like that it's it's incredible and and so i was sort of i was so in awe of this man's book when i first read it and i was like wow this man's incredible and gregarious and you know arrogant and but that's okay if you won the tour de france seven times then yeah you're allowed to be arrogant and then of course you know um i watched a documentary i think in in 2012 A documentary came out with uh, all of his ex-teammates from the U.S. Postal Service team, Frankie Andrew, his wife, Betty Andrew. And the whole edifice starts to crumble. And to see it happen in real time, having enjoyed that book so much and and, and believed what the ethos of the man. And that's just me as a layman. I mean, imagine the people who are really into cycling or... You know, the people who worked for his cancer foundation, this whole edifice crumbling away in front of your very eyes. It's like seeing a sort of revolution. And then, you know, since that documentary and, 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 and the, the Oprah interview and the, the whole edifice and being stripped and cast out and being this sort of huge social pariah of going from massive hero to absolute zero. It's just so interesting to me. I think it's inherent in human nature to sort of, I don't know, it's not, it's not lascivious pleasure, but it's sort of, um, it's the old, it's the old thing of, you know, rubbernecking an accident when you drive past it on the motorway. Or or, um, it's such a sort of base human aspect that it's wonderful to see, I kind of sort of almost revel in it i'd love i'd love to play a character like that I, in fact i do love playing characters like that who just have this huge secret that they carry around with them and then the whole edifice starts to crumble and yeah you know and then what's amazing is since documentary there's been uh, another documentary just called lance which has come out in the last couple of years which is just his take on the whole situation and that is Quite something to behold because, look, I guess everybody was taking drug- performance-enhancing drugs and EPO and all those kind of you know and adrenaline, all this kind of thing. So it's sort of weird to me. It's sort of you know, does that make it worse or does that make it okay? I mean, it doesn't excuse it, but but it makes me want to ask
0: the the, the, yeah. the notion. Of separating the art from the artist. So lots of stuff that Lance said in that book are still valid, even though he was lying and cheating. And if it moves yeah. into, into your, your category of, of, of work and, and talent, is there's something that, that confronts me. So am I supposed to now not like uh, Kevin Spacey's performance in Glengarry Glen Ross, which was sensational because of certain things that are now revealed about him as a man, or am I allowed to still think it's fantastic? And I sort of feel, but I haven't worked it through, that, well, of course I'm allowed to still think it's fantastic. You know, what what do you do if you find out that, I don't know, some actor's got an appalling secret?
1: It's the sort of uh, $25 million question, really. I mean, I think you can separate the work from the the person, because they're two different things. So do I. I I think, what what world do we live in? We hold incredible figures through history in great vaunted opinion and put them up on pedestals. But we have no idea really of their true nature as a person because because people just weren't exposed in those days because of the lack of information. There really is through, you know, for better or for worse, and both arguments are valid for that, but social media and the sort of proliferation of... <sighs> of big brother in our lives, you know, has sort of exposed everybody to the degree where secrets don't necessarily go with you to the grave. So are people worse now than they were 200 years ago? Of course they're not. Probably they're better. Do people get away with it less? Yes. So, you know, who's who's to know that Shakespeare wasn't, you know, and if we found out he
0: was, does it make Hamlet any less good? Probably not.
1: Exactly. Do you suddenly stop performing Hamlet or uh, rip down the Rose Theatre or, or the Globe? Sorry, not the Rose. Yeah. Rose has been gone 400 years. <laughs> but, <laughs> the Globe Theatre. Do you know what I mean? Do you tear that down? You, you can't erase history. And, and by the way, nothing, I don't think anything has been proven uh, about Kevin Spacey. Okay, so, right.
0: Allegedly, I should have said, yeah.
1: Allegedly, yeah. So um, absolutely, D- these people's, um, I mean, their merits have gone. But, you know, do you stop watching Miramax films because Harvey Weinstein's name is on the title? No, because they're great films. Um, having
0: mentioned Spacey, just by coincidence, is, is you played his role in Glen Granry Glen Ross on stage.
1: Uh, yeah, John Williamson, yeah.
0: Yeah, that play is a piece of perfection. There's not a spare word in it. How was that experience for you?
1: It was Christine Slater. Um, it was a great cast, but it's an incredibly... Uh, lean play the words are are sort of have been honed there's no fat on it whatsoever and it's so visceral and actually playing the character i played and if you know the play you know williamson is not the most popular character in the play
0: (laughs) Um, indeed not
1: so to do that play and you do it eight times a week on stage um so i reckon we must have done that play 150 times 160 times and doing that play day after day after day which is a proper study in 80s toxic masculinity it sort of starts all plays really when you do them enough through a sort of state of osmosis you start to take on the character you're playing
0: oh no lovable chris became a twat
1: unfortunately i was with a very good cast of people um (laughs) and we all got on brilliantly um and had a great laugh so that I don't think happened. But <laughs> what did happen is there's a speech uh, in the play that Ricky Romer says to Williamson at the end. Yeah, 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 yeah. Which is so cutting. It's a, it's a proper takedown of Williamson and his character. That sort of started to sort of bleed into both of us, I think. I, right. He, it's not that you take it personally. It's just that, you know, you're so, I guess, because the play's good. Yeah. And because, because the words have such impact. But if you keep doing it enough, it starts to sort of um, permeate into, wow. your, into your being. No one really comes off well out of that play.
0: <laughs> I'm going to liberate you and move you to the 70s where, where your song on Five My Life has been uh, chosen from. And you've chosen it from one of the albums that a number of respected people claim is the greatest album ever recorded. Oh, do they? Yeah, it's Pink Floyd's 10th album, Animals, inspired by George Orwell's Animal Farm.
1: Pink man, pink man,
0: shall ride you oh my God, pigs, three different ones. It's mind-bendingly good, mind-bendingly clever and thought-provoking. I've had it on on Just Shuffle for the last four days. It is a sensation. Tell us about why you have chosen that.
1: This is probably the hardest of the five subjects to choose. A song that represents your life um, or the way you look at life. You know, because your choices are boundless and, uh, you know, and different songs. I think more than anything, songs represent periods in your life. I think that's why they're so powerful in film because they sort of demarcate your life and they have this uncanny ability to take you back straight away, back into whatever part of your life that is, which I think nothing else can. Yeah. So the reason it's Pink Floyd is because I, I went to a very bucolic, pastoral country primary school in the West of England till I was eleven. I had like 90 kids there. It was very Laurie Lee. It was very sort of um, sided with Rosie, you know, kissing in haystacks. Um, and then I got sent to, because my dad's job, he was with the RAF, so he, he would get posted abroad often. I got sent to this sort of middling English boarding school. And I was very green, very naive. But when I got there, everyone there seemed to have the most esoteric, precocious taste in music (laughs) and so so from the age of 11 i started listening to obscure pink floyd albums you know small furry animals gathering in a cave and grooving with a picked and you think this is normal you know and 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 then it's only sort of later on you come out of school and you go that was quite precocious actually (laughs) (laughs) you know at 11 to be listening to obscure pink floyd albums but whilst at school i i came across the album of animals and it was kind of around the time that um, I read some Orwell. And, of course, you know, the two obvious Orwells, 1984 Animal Farm. Um, but also, I really love a book of um, Orwells about his time fighting in the Spanish Civil War. Oh,
0: wonderful. Buttered toast. We've got buttered toast over here.
1: <laughs> I yeah. love that book. <laughs> So all these things. And, of course, at the time, I was starting to experience you know, some, some issues with authority um, at school um, and, the, and institution. And I was trying to work out in my own head my own feelings when I was about 14 or 15 on, you know, institution and the fact that you can push institution, but institution will always push back and institution in the end will always win. But what you can do is you can poke it constantly with a stick you know, and, and this song to me is sort of the, the representation of that to me at that age. The people who run, the, who are powerful in society, you know, the lawmakers, the bankers, people who are supposedly put in place for your common good. <laughs> I mean, it's bullshit. Yeah. It's bullshit. It's fine, I guess, if you subscribe to that as, a, as an automaton. You wander through life slavishly following rules because they're there, not because not because you agree with them. Of course, um, some rules are there because it's the m- morally right thing to do. But there are other rules and um, ways of thinking that are there to keep the man down, to stop you thinking for yourself, to be a good worker, to be slavishly a good citizen. And that's bullshit. Yeah. Um, and those should be challenged constantly. Throughout history, change has come through people challenging these norms. You have to educate an individual and then let them make their own choices in life. That's how society should work. You know, because what happens is if you if you sort of what you're what you're asking people to do is you're sort of what you're doing is you're and Orwell got this brilliantly. You're you're sort of empowering your fellow citizen to spy on theirs on their fellow citizens. And really, with social media, this is just you know, you know, gone full on. And what you what you do is you could kind of create a divisive society, and it's so divisive that you need more rules to stop the whole thing falling down. And I think Pink Floyd got that perfectly. And I think they do it brilliantly in in all of their songs. I mean, I chose it because it's a bloody brilliant song. You know, and I love to listen to it when I'm driving, especially. But it still stands up now.
0: If you released it now and it hadn't been released before, it would be a smash hit. It's 11 minutes of brilliance. We're we're putting it on the Five My Life Spotify playlist. There's something that you said, Chris, that made me want to pick you up on. Because you say institutions will always win. But but haven't you recently got, which I'm thrilled, I hope this is true, haven't you recently won against an institution? Because part of the bloody phone-tapping news of the world... Thingy, did, didn't you? Didn't you poke back and win? Please tell me that's true. Well,
1: will have to tread carefully here, but um, oh, okay, there was no admission of guilt. Um, I um did take umbrage against uh a certain institution and um held them to task about it, uh, and I won. Yeah,
0: good on you, mate, bloody good on you. <laughs> Now, we're going to move to Lord Alfred Tennyson's favourite spot, or one of them, Uh, for the place on Five My Life. You have chosen Kynance Cove on the Lizard Peninsula in Cornwall, England. Could you describe it first for our listeners who may not have been there?
1: So, um, Kynance Cove, it's kind of like Middle Earth. (laughs) Right. It's a place, um, the Lizard Peninsula in Cornwall, in the southwest of England. It's sort of like Italy on its side, if you know what I mean. It's sort of like a bit of a weird boot and it's got two promontories coming out at the end of it one of them is a place called Kynance Cove and it's, it's a national trust area and it's a place where the sea meets on both sides of one beach so it's sort of, I think what it is, it's, it's an old collapsed cliff really, with the stack remaining um, as an island.
0: Asparagus Island, the wonderfully called.
1: Is that what it's called?
0: It's called Asparagus Island, and it's connected by a Tombolo, which is a sandy, rocky isthmus. Half <laughs> is an amazing place.
1: <laughs> wow, you've done your research more than I have, but um, it's it's an incredible place. And and so, and the whole place is covered at high tide, so you, it's completely inaccessible at high tide. You can only go between half tide and low tide. So you have to you have to know your tide times, otherwise you're going to get caught out. At low tide, it sort of becomes two beaches, and so you sort of feel like the sea is both in front of you and behind you, and you're sort of surrounded on all sides by the Atlantic Ocean. And it's it's such a mythical place. And of course, there's blowholes and there's little caves. And and I first went down there when uh, when I was 18. A friend of mine, he his mum had this sort of little uh, sort of fisherman's sail loft where they used to store the sails from from the fishing boats and they used to store the salted fish that they used to catch that still had the um written on the beams the number of catch that had been caught of each type of fish each year so it would have like flounder times 25 1859 (laughs) written on the beams and the salt from the fish a, a sort of had become encrusted into the stone of the building. This place was in a, in a little village called Cadgwith, which is just across the way from Kainan's Cove. And so we used to go down there at low tide. Every day we were down there, and we just used to explore this most amazing place. And it's quite a big place, and you can never tire of it. And it's the most beautiful place, because most places in the UK, it being quite a crowded island, they're pretty crowded, because everyone else wants to go there as well but with kindness when the when the tide goes out and especially when the tide starts to come back in you kind of get the place to yourself and it's usually misty uh often raining but the sea is has this sort of amazing cornish blue green turquoise color about it and it's quite violent down there and it's it's got this sort of Stark beauty about the place that I that I particularly love. I I love the exposure of being of nature, which we'll touch on in a minute because of my next choice. But you know what I particularly love being outside and and extreme nature. I I, I love it, the sea, the mountains. It sort of makes me feel both insignificant and significant at the same time
0: well i tell you having you having chosen it uh, next time i'm i'm over i am going to go in your honor because it just looks amazing and, let, and let's go to your fifth and final choice your your possession because you you've chosen a six foot ten inch spider murphy thruster which i know what it is now but please <laughs> explain to our listeners it's not some hideous sex toy it, it's a surfboard
1: well it might be a sex toy but um <laughs> but uh, we, we shall discuss no, it's, um, it's a surfboard, yeah. So around the time that we went down to Cornwall with my mates when I was about 18, and I just fell in love with the place, I became kind of semi-obsessed with surfing because I've always been such a huge fan, as I just said, you know, of nature and wild nature and the power of nature and how brutal it can be and yet beautiful, and surfing, it doesn't really come closer um, to making you feel more insignificant than the power of waves. It's so incredible that this sort of slab of water, what it can do, and, and I just became obsessed with watching waves. And then I was like, well, when I started around a few quid, I thought, you know what, I'm gonna, I'm gonna learn how to surf. So. So I got, I got to sort of about 23, 24, and I thought, right, I want to learn how to surf properly. So rather than sort of, you know, doing the thing where you, you go down to, with a couple of mates, to um, a surf school, and you play around on a sponger in the shallows of, of, you know, in the white water of some beach, I decided to get straight to it. So I went down and I, and I rented a board, and it was a, it was a thruster. It was a particular type of board. And I went out in eight-foot seas, um, which is the most (laughs) bloody (laughs) stupid thing to do. And I went out on my own as well. um, And it was the most bloody stupid thing to do. I nearly drowned. But but I also caught my first wave out there, and it was the most beautiful experience. And as I started to sort of um, do quite well at work, and, you know, the, the beauty of being an actor is you work usually intense periods of time, you know, 90, 100 hours a week on film sets. And then you get spat out at the end of your job and the door closes behind you and, and you, they go, thanks very much. You're now unemployed. You need to go and find some more work. And so you're sort of in the constant state of semi-retirement, you know. So, but, you're, but you're young, you know, and, um, and, if you're, and if you're lucky enough to have a bit of disposable income, you've got time on your hands. And the world is your oyster and you're like, well, what am I going to do now? So since I've had kids, I don't surf quite so much. I sort of moved it more into sailing and skiing. I still love surfing, but it it, it batters you. And also it's a thing that you need to do really every day or every week. If you're not surf fit, you can't surf really. So, and I don't really live, well, I don't live near close to the coast. So, But what I did was I went out and bought this board the 610 truster, and I proceeded to take it all around the world with me. And it is the most cumbersome thing to take with you. (laughs) And, And so it's sort of a bit of a poisoned chalice in a way. I love that board because I've surfed it in Oz, I've surfed it in Hawaii, I've surfed it in Bali, Portugal, of course, Cornwall. I've surfed it in so many different places, but I really think that I must have only caught about three good waves on it in 12 years.
0: <laughs> 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 <laughs>
1: and so, <laughs> do you have it
0: hanging up in in home at Bath, or, or where is it yeah, now?
1: It's Now in my garage. It's so dinged, and it's got cr- it's got a crack down the in the fiberglass down the back. It's that I kept I, I kept surfing on it with a crack in it, so. The water got inside the polyurethane or whatever it is, filler, i.e. splitting the fibreglass casing even more. It's ruined. But I can't seem to want to get rid of it. I still think I'm going to... I still sort of think in the back of my mind I'm going to revert back to my late 20s and, you know, load up a rucksack and my Spider Murphy and um, head off to some random island near Borneo or something and and go surfing. It's not going to happen. I chose it because I think... It's synonymous with travel for me. It's um, representative of of a freedom I had before I had kids and how lucky I've been as well in in that I've been able to do a job that I love and and that gives me time off where I can go off and have adventures. And even though I've been walking around airports around the world, lugging this (laughs) seven-foot surfboard around um, that I've caught, Looking, you know, like Kelly Slater, but really, in reality, I've surfed about three good waves on it. It's it, it sort of, <laughs> it's it, it sort of, every time I look at it, it, it it's, it's so sort of representative of my late 20s and early 30s. And um, I can't bear to get rid of it.
0: Can, can I say, Chris, you, you have been an absolute angel telling your stories on 5 My Life. You, you've taken the format seriously. I, I, I have loved I just love listening to you. The, the story about feeling bad about yourself because of Christian Slater. The story about your, your surfboard reminding you of your youth. I, I'm I'm going to let you get on the slopes, but I'm going to ask you three additional questions if you don't mind.
1: Please do, please do. I, can I just say before you say uh, it's been an absolute pleasure to see you again, um, albeit over um, over bandwidth, but um, but I've I've really enjoyed it. I love I love the podcast. I r- really love the format i think it works beautifully and um i've had a great time hopefully we'll we when you get back over to the uk we'll get together for a large cup of tea and uh yeah and I, i've had a brilliant time thank you
0: oh mate that's very nice of you to say okay so the first question is you can choose it's a bit of a double which is okay what is you what is your biggest regret or mistake and and on a positive thing you know thing that you might have 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 learned from or whatever else or or not
1: yeah my biggest mistake oh gosh that's a really tough question
0: <laughs> how many
1: how many yeah 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 but also i'm i'm, I'm thinking about what's going to be palatable for uh, for a podcast
0: <laughs>
1: um can i come back to that mate I'm going to come back to that.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, so the second one is, um, what do you wish people understood about you? Now, now, for people who aren't as—I mean, I, I, you know, I know you, and I, I really admire you and your work, and I've been researching you. But for people who who aren't as familiar with you as I am, you are enormously successful, enormously high profile. You've, I mean, the, 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 whether it's my family, whether, whether it's Death in Paradise, whether it's the BT campaign, I, I read a thing saying it it, it united the nation. Uh, it'll never be forgotten. It is, you've got a big profile and you are loved. And sometimes, a bit like Richard E. Grant saying people still shout scrubbers at him once a week from <laughs> with Nell and I, and that might not be where his head is at. 40 years later, if you've got the talking stick, is there something that really pisses you off that you go, I really wish people understood this about me?
1: Yeah, I would say um, what I try and do with my characters is make them, you know, utterly believable, but also flawed. The the thing that most interests me, really, about creating a character or playing any kind of character is how flawed people are. For example, the character in Love Actually, I wanted to make a character who was the least attractive person that you could possibly come across. Someone, you know, <laughs> That's the whole point of the joke. The whole joke is the, 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 the least attractive man. I mean, I've ne- I'd never seen anybody pick their nose on celluloid before. So I thought <laughs> I'm going to have a character who picks their nose. Because people do it in real life. I've always thought as an actor, you've got to park your ego at the door. I mean, actually, that was a lot easier when I was younger than it is now, um, w- weirdly. But um, the older you get, the more um, more you want to protect yourself, I don't know. But um, what I wish often is, is that people don't assume or presume that I'm anything like the characters I play. Right. Both in both in a in a sort of in a in a good way, but also, I'm not always as approachable as you might think I am either. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I mean, <laughs> um, you know, I, I love it when people come up and, and are nice, but you know, but you you get some people who just uh, it's weird. They they sort of you know, and and also time moves on. You know, some of the work that people recognize you from as 20 years old yep. you know, and they sort of come over and they look at you and they go you don't look like you did I go, well you you don't look like you did 20 years ago either <laughs> This is I'm
0: so, I'm so glad to hear, thank you for taking that question head on because it must be I mean I don't know if 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 you know Alan Partridge isn't probably like Alan Partridge in real life I mean but people think that they they see you on the telly or the big screen so they they know you so it must be a, it, it must be wearing on the nerves
1: but I will say I will say Nigel it's it's a small price to pay for all the great things that you get in that in that position You know, I mean, I don't want to seem ungrateful. It it is a small price to pay. But, yeah, it's a little wearing sometimes.
0: So I'm I'm going to come back to the first question in a second. I'm going to ask you the the, the third question next, um, which is who would you like to hear on Five of My Life next, Chris?
1: I think I'd love to hear Richard E. Grant.
0: Oh, my word. I I would adore to hear his stories. God, okay.
1: He's done an incredible life. He grew up in Swaziland and... uh, he had an incredible childhood, and then obviously he's had this amazing career. But also, you know, in the last sort of five years, he's had a real renaissance in his career. It's, it's heartening to see that as an actor. And now you're going to ask me about this regret.
0: Um, <laughs> I'm going to hold your feet to the fire, Marshall. Come on, you must have one regret, one mistake.
1: There was one mistake. I shouldn't have had. The one mistake was I shouldn't have had the extra rum and coke I had the night I got run over in Bristol. Wow. Well,
0: that well that's... Uh, <laughs> you got run over. I mean, badly?
1: I was... Uh, yeah, I was sedated in intensive care for about a week. Um, oh, blimey. A punctured lung, about eight staples in my head. It was pretty messy. It would have been a lot messier... Uh, but I instinctively tried to jump out of the way, as you would when you're about to be hit by a car, and so I kind of avoided because I was in the air when the car hit me. I kind of avoided the worst of the injuries, but it was it was completely my fault. I was uh, I was on a stag do and um, I'd had a really great day, uh, but I hadn't eaten enough, and I we went straight out drinking and. And I wish I hadn't had that last drink. So that
0: is, Five of My Life isn't instructional, but I do like to think under the radar, we are enlightening and elevating. So we have a jewel there. Is after the, what, the 15th rum and coke? Sack the 16th. Pour it in the pot plant. Don't have the 16th rum and coke.
1: It was actually more like the fourth. uh, (laughs) fourth. Um, it It was a particularly poor show on an empty stomach. So, yeah, my mistake was always lie in your stomach on a stag do
0: i love it chris marshall you, you are a dead set legend thank you for the work that you do i hope the snow is sensational today i hope when you get back home you have more jobs and offers than you know what to do with you're beating them off with a shitty stick um and i hope to see you in the next couple of years maybe even at Kynance cove
1: i look forward to that thank you nigel i've had a brilliant time
0: Thank you for listening to this episode. If you follow five of my life, you might enjoy my latest book, Smart, Stupid and 60. In it, I write about a number of the issues discussed on the show. It's the 20 year follow on from my first book, Fat, 40 and Fired. If you have any feedback on the book or suggestions
1: for the show, please get in touch via my website, nigelmarsh.com.